And he went up to the, on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. This is God's word. You may be seated. Uh, we continue our summer series with yet another list from the Bible. This one is a list of the 12 apostles chosen by Jesus. And of course, there are only 12 apostles in this passage. Those are people who were chosen as Jesus' special representatives with special tasks to fulfill. And yet, their selection helps us understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. I think we can learn a lot from this list, a lot about ourselves and what Jesus does for us and what He calls us to do. So as we look at these 12 apostles, we will learn that like all disciples, including us, they have been called, they've been gathered, and they've been sent. So this is your outline for this morning, called, gathered, and sent. Okay, so look with me, please, at verse 13. So our passage begins, uh, Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. It's crucial to note that none of the 12, none of the 12 apostles became an apostle because he decided to pursue this position, that somehow this was in their plan and this was the next step in their career or in their life plan. This is not at all what happened here. Jesus called them. They were called by Jesus, and they responded to that call. They did. And yet it was Jesus' call that made them apostles out of the multitudes of people following Jesus. And in fact, this passage presents Jesus as, as constantly br being pressed upon by others. He's pressured by everybody around him wanting his time. So out of all those people, Jesus picks 12 men and makes them his apostles. Now, this call that changes us, that makes us different, is true of all Christians. In fact, to be a disciple of Jesus is to respond to that call. It's to hear his voice saying, follow me. Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica, this is 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14, he says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and believe in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He called you through our gospel. Paul says, the reason you are Christians, the reason you are in this church, the reason you are who you are in Christ is because He called you. 
so that you may obtain the glory of Jesus. The call shares this glory with us. Every genuine Christian has been chosen and called by Jesus Christ himself. That's what makes you a Christian. Now look at verse 14. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. So that they might be with him. Not only are we chosen by Jesus, but we're also chosen for Jesus. He calls us to be with him. The call is to relationship. And it's that relationship with Jesus that actually changes us. When Peter and John were arrested for proclaiming the gospel, this is after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, when they were arrested for proclaiming the gospel and they were brought before the council, before all these very, very important people, very powerful people in Israel, and they heard them speak, this council heard the apostles speak, this is how they responded. This is Acts 4, verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. What makes the difference? Education? Noble origin? No. It's being with Jesus. That's what changes us. That's what makes us bold. That's what changes our character, our, our, the whole course of our lives. It's being with him. So when Jesus calls you, he's not only calling you out of a multitude and choosing you, but he's also choosing you for himself. It says that he called all that, that he desired. Those that he, he has chosen, he desired them. He willed that they would come to him. Why? So they could be with him. So he can have us. So he can be with us. And it's that that's relationship that actually transforms us. And as you look at this list, you see hints of that. And I think they're pretty obvious statements, but at least hints of how that relationship with Jesus has already changed some of these men. The first on the list is Simon. Simon, to whom Jesus gave the name Peter. So Jesus calls Simon out of the multitude, and then he changes his name, which, by the way, this is what God does, right? So Jesus is already exercising his authority as God here. He takes Simon and he makes him Peter. Peter means rock or stone or even jewel in Greek. So he takes this man and he changes him. Now we'll come back. Maybe you'll see why this particular name is important in the way that, that Jesus uses Peter later. But I just want to emphasize that the change happens here. Jesus called Peter and changed him. And all of us are changed when we come to Jesus. We may not receive a new name, even though that happens sometimes, but we all receive a new identity. We become different. Now look at verse 17. It lists James and John, who along with Peter comprise Jesus' closest circle of friends. They're the three that are constantly with him. He takes them to places and teaches them. And to these two men, James and John, Jesus gave the name Sons of Thunder. Sons of Thunder. Man, what a great, what a great name. 
I mean, we got, we got Logan Boaz, right? It was born yesterday. That's, that's a pretty good name. <laughs> but Thuns of Thunder. It's like, you know, somebody whose name is The Hammer, right? Like the nickname Hammer. I mean, there's just good ones here. So the question is, why? And one theory is, and I think most commentators today see it as a reference to their impulsive and even explosive temper. Remember, it was James and John in Luke 9 that were ready to call down fire from heaven on a Samaritan village, right? When they were not welcomed in that village, they said, Jesus, shouldn't, shouldn't we just call fire from heaven, just destroy them? That's the kind of people that were sons of, sons of thunder. And so many uh, commentators think that it's Jesus is looking at them, Jesus knows them, and so he gives them this, this nickname. But it's interesting that as I looked at some of the older commentaries, and I mean really old commentaries, like first couple centuries, you see that the early church fathers actually connect this nickname not with their personality, but with their task to preach the gospel. They were going to thunder the gospel. They were going to be the people that were going to proclaim boldly the gospel of Jesus. But either way, Jesus changed them when he called them. James would be put to death by King Herod, and John would live a very long life and be known as the apostle of love. Both men changed by Jesus. There's one more thing about the call of Jesus that we must point out here. It's not explicit in our text, but it is here. Verse 19 lists Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Why does Mark mention that Judas would betray Jesus? I think Mark doesn't want the readers to see Jesus apart from this death on the cross that he was to experience. Now, of course, even in verse 6 of our chapter, right before our passage, we see the Pharisees and the Herodians already plotting to destroy Jesus. As the gospel writers describe the life of Jesus, none of them ignore the fact that it is all going towards his death. In fact, all of them spend much more time and, much, uh, and many more chapters on describing his suffering and death than on other things. And so Mark, even though this is very early in the story, that's just chapter 3, Mark is already thinking that Jesus was going to give his life for those he calls to himself. His death is inevitable. His death is essential to that call because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So his call comes at a great cost to him. The call comes from the cross, from the crucified. His blood calls us to follow him. He who dies in our place to shield us from God's wrath, to offer us eternal life, calls us to himself. This is who calls us. And this is why that call is so powerful, because this is not just, you know, a, just an idea on a Tuesday afternoon. Why don't I gather these guys around me? It's not like that. He, Jesus pays for each one of them with his life. Anyone Jesus calls to himself has been purchased by his blood. This is serious. This is costly to him. And that's why it's so transformative to us that when we are called by this person, by the crucified and risen Jesus, it can't but change us, make us different, gives us a new identity, gives us a new 
calling in life. Now imagine, this is the, the picture I've had in my mind as I was thinking about this. It's not a perfect analogy, but, but I think it communicates something about what Jesus does for us, how he gets us to himself, how he calls us, how he, he accepts us into fellowship with himself. Imagine a wildfire raging, and there's this very small neighborhood, small community, just a few houses that is encircled by these flames. And it's just a matter of a very short time until this fire consumes the whole neighborhood. The people are there. They're waiting for rescuers to come. And so finally there's a helicopter that comes and miraculously lands, and, and everybody just piles up into the helicopter. But it's too many people. Helicopter can't take off and much less take anybody to safety unless somebody gets off. Nobody can get on unless somebody gets off. And so everybody's on, on board, and there's just one person trying to get on, and there's just no room. And so finally, one of the rescue workers says, okay, I'll get off, you get on, you be safe, I'll stay here. That's what Jesus does. It is an exchange. Jesus takes our place so we can take his place. Jesus gets off so he can be in the fire for us so we can be safe. That's the call. Jesus says, you get on because I'm getting off. You come on. You be part of this family. You be part of this kingdom, and I will pay for this. I mean, that's the call. That's why, by the way, when Jesus calls you, everything is on the table. There are no criteria. There are no conditions. Nobody called by Christ can say, okay, Jesus, here's the deal. You did this for me. I will do this for you. But I will only do this for you. Don't call me to do that. That's too much. That's unreasonable. See, nobody can say that to Jesus if you understand where that call comes from. Because if it comes from the cross, then everything is on the table, even the cross for us. And by the way, almost all these guys died for Jesus because they knew the one who died for them can demand absolutely anything from them, and they were happy to give it to him. Jesus comes, and he calls us, at a great cost to him, and we respond with complete obedience. Have you been called by Jesus? Have you been with him? Would other people looking at your life say, yeah, there's a lot of weird things about this guy, but he's been with Jesus. I can tell that there's something about him, there's something about her that separates them from everybody else. And not because of them, but because of who they're with. Because they've been called by this Jesus, and everything has changed for them. Has Jesus taken your place on the cross so you can take his place in glory? Have you died to your old self, your old identity, because Jesus died to give you a new self and a new identity? Is that you? Now, we, we're all church people. You're here on a Sunday morning. I get it. We're all religious, we're all committed to these things, and nothing wrong with that. But with that comes the ability to ignore the most important things we say in church, because we're so used to certain things. 
And it's so easy just to do what we're supposed to do. But the reason you're here, if you're a Christian, the real reason you're here is because Jesus died for you. And he bought you with his blood. And he calls you to follow him. So have you heard that call? Or are you still resisting it? Because he is calling you. Now we've been called as disciples of Jesus. We've also been gathered. That's the second thing we see from this passage is that he calls us into a relationship with himself, but he also calls us into community with other disciples. I mean, notice that while calls are different, and as you read the Gospels, you will see that Levi was called at a certain time, and then John and James were called, and there's two sets of brothers here, so they were called together. I mean, you see there's different circumstances, and yet they were called, all called into this one community. They were the twelve. They traveled with Jesus. They were united not just to Jesus, but to one another. They become a group of people following together, a community, each relating to him personally and yet all relating to him as a group. Now, I remember, I think this probably wasn't this past Easter, but the Easter before, and I was preaching in one of my, you know, a little more emotional than usual moments. I said, my Jesus because I just, I just felt this, this connection with him, and I wanted to proclaim to you that he is my Jesus, that I have this deep personal relationship with him. And there was a kid, Joanna, who said, my Jesus in church. You, 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 can get, you can get the tape if you want from, I think, two Easter's ago. There was the sense of like, yeah, he's your Jesus, but he's also my Jesus. And that's true, isn't it? Any one of us who's a Christian, we can proclaim that he is my Jesus. Very much true. My Je I have a relationship with him that none of you have with him. And yet at the same time, you all have a relationship with him. And we know him as my Jesus and as our Jesus. We know him separately, individually, personally, and yet we know him together. We are a band of brothers. We are a community of believers. We are a family of siblings. And we're together relating to him. Not just separately, not just individually, but together. Now, why did Jesus choose 12 men and not 11 or 13? Or seven. Seven is a great biblical number, right? Why 12? Because for a Bible reader, and anybody who's read the Bible, would immediately associate the number 12 with the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus is doing something symbolic here. It's not just a community. This is something special about this community. He's, he's gathering these men into something that is, has high symbolic value. You might remember that Jacob, who was later renamed Israel by the Lord, had 12 sons from whom the different tribes came. And each tribe, in fact, inherited specific territory within the promised land. So by designating 12 apostles, these 12 men, Jesus is reorganizing Israel around himself. Jesus is doing something pretty crazy, which is why I think his family actually thinks he is crazy. His family looks at him and they hear about him designating 12 apostles, 12 to follow him, 12 to continue his work. And they're saying, Jesus, you're out of your mind. Let's go get him before he does any more harm. One commentator noticing that 
this also comes in the context of Jesus' conflict with the synagogue and conflict with the religious authorities of his day. This commentator concludes, against this background, it looks very much as though Jesus was establishing a new nation when he appointed the twelve. If his family thought he was setting up a new regime, then from a certain point of view, their conviction that he was out of his mind is understandable. This is what Jesus is doing. He's picking 12 people to be the beginning of a new nation, to be the beginning of a new kingdom. He's reorganizing, regrouping Israel. And by the way, this is happening in, in Galilee, in the north, where Israel had lost the land. And so now Jesus is gathering the new tribes, the new people of God. And he's doing everything around himself. He is the new Torah. He's the new word. He is the new temple. He is the new sacrifice. He is the new land and the inheritance. Everything is now around, around him. And so these 12 men is the beginning of the new family that will multiply and fill the earth as the kingdom of heaven spreads. And then later in the chapter, Mark 3, verses 34 and 35, when Jesus' mother and brothers demand to see him, he looks at his disciples. He looks at us, and he says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. That's his family. We are his family. We have been adopted into this new people of God, this new family, this new kingdom, this new reorganized Israel. We are a part of that by his choice. Now, let me point out just two things about this new family that Jesus has gathered. And we see in this list things that are relevant to us today that are still very much playing themselves out in church. Number one, in this family, in this kingdom, the first become last, and the last become first. Peter is listed first, and Judas last. However, in many ways, Judas is a much better candidate to be at the top of this list. But Jesus flips it. Jesus puts Peter first when Peter really should have been last. And he puts Judas last. Judas seemed to have been much more responsible, much more organized, much more serious, much more self-controlled than Peter. You don't get the job of, of a treasurer, which is what was Judas's job, without having these skills, without having this reputation. And yet, he's at the bottom of the list. Peter, on the other hand, this impulsive, unreliable Peter, is at the top of this list. Now, what's the difference between the two? And the difference, quite simply, is grace. It's grace. Peter needed grace, and he knew he needed grace. He knew what it was like to be forgiven. I don't know if Judas ever knew that. Peter knew what it was like to be restored, to be rescued by Jesus. Judas never thought he needed grace. He justified his self-righteousness and his sins. Remember, he was a thief. And then he justified even his betrayal of Jesus. First or last, and last or first in God's kingdom, because we 
enter and remain in this kingdom by grace alone. Simon was named Peter. And this transformation of of somebody unreliable and impulsive into the rock for the church, (laughs) into this foundational leader, into the one that Jesus was going to send out to open new territories for the gospel. Jesus had to come so that the church can go into Samaria. Jesus had to open the door for the Gentiles through Peter. He had to do all of that through Peter. Peter the rock, Peter the jewel of the church. Peter? (laughs) We have to say Peter the rock, Peter the jewel of the church. Yes, changed by grace, empowered by God at the top of the list. Now, secondly, in this new family, our relationships with one another are defined by our relationship with Jesus. Our relationships with one another are defined by our relationships with Jesus. He gathers us, and we relate to one another through him. Among the 12 apostles, we find Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. Matthew, also called Levi, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. Now, Matthew was collecting and often extorting money for the Roman government. He was collaborating with the invaders and occupiers against his own people, enriching himself in the process. For many Jews, there was no one lower, no one more despicable than a tax collector. Now, Simon, on the other hand, was a zealot, a revolutionary ready to join a violent uprising against Rome. Simon had a reputation for his hatred of Rome. Matthew had a reputation for his collaboration with Rome. And these two very different people walked side by side as they followed Jesus. They shared meals together. They served together. I mean, it's hard to imagine two people more at odds with each other. They were exactly opposite on the political spectrum. Either would be rejected by the friends of the other. In fact, I don't think there was... There was any other setting in which these two people could be together and have a conversation. I don't think there was any other place, any other community, any other opportunity where they could actually meet and talk except in the presence of Jesus. Now, during the pandemic and all the political and social crises that we all experienced during that time, I was both encouraged and saddened by what I saw in the church at large, and in our church in particular. I was greatly encouraged that the vast majority of our people were able to prioritize their commitment to Jesus and their commitment to their brothers and sisters in this church over their particular views on COVID, on masks, on vaccines, on political parties, and so on. It was amazing. Because I know what some of you believe. And to see some of you with a mask on a Sunday morning, that's got to be God. (laughs) Had to be God. And to see others of you without a mask in a gathering, it had to be God. 
I saw the gospel at work. I saw the power of the gospel because people that felt strongly about certain things were able to say, I will put it aside because I love my brothers and sisters and because I want to worship together with you. And so I will, even though you may not have changed any of your views on those things, but you were humble before the Lord and loving to your brothers and sisters. Of course, I was also saddened that some people were not able to do that. Praise God, not many in our congregation, only a few, and yet some left the church, broke fellowship, because they could not prioritize Jesus over that. And I understand there is complexity, and I am in no way saying that everybody who left the church during those three years, right, left it for the wrong reasons. I'm not saying that. But I think some did. I think some could not prioritize Jesus. I think there were Levi's, Matthew's, tax collectors that could not be in the same church with Simon the Zealot and vice versa. Now here's the lesson from our experience of the pandemic. We don't know how real and how important our Christianity is until it is tested in community. It has to be tested. You have to be with people who are different, and you have to come to the gospel together. And then you have to see if the gospel is powerful enough to keep you together. Is the gospel powerful enough to gather us into a new family so that our connections to each other are like those of siblings? Siblings don't all agree with each other, do they? But, our, but our, is our connection strong enough to be together? Is the gospel strong enough to keep us together? We saw that it is in this church. Our church didn't fall apart. In fact, I would say in many ways it made us stronger because we have refocused once again, as we constantly have to do, we have refocused on the gospel again. And we said, I will put this aside for you because the gospel is more important than this. Now, what you see in the New Testament is the pursuit of unity based on our common allegiance to Jesus. Now, consider that Paul refuses in his letters, he refuses to separate congregations into Jewish and Gentile churches. He refuses to do that. This would have been so much easier to do. You Jews can't get along with the Gentiles because you can't figure out what you can eat and what you can wear and when to worship. Why don't you just, you guys worship over here and you guys worship over here. This would have been a great, efficient, practical solution. And yet Paul does not even entertain that. Because he knows that in the differences, in us coming together, being gathered by Jesus, the gospel is put on display. And that is actually part of our testimony to the world is we should be able to say there is no other place in our culture today where these two people can be together and have a conversation. But here it happens. Can we say that? Of course, it doesn't mean that our views and preferences don't matter or that they don't change. I don't think Matthew and Simon held on to the same views on Rome and Israel that they had before Jesus called them 
as they were welcomed into the kingdom of God. I think they changed their views. Of course they did. But I suspect that they still differed on how a Jew must function in the Roman world. I think some differences remained, maybe based on their experience, based on their temperament, based on their personal preference. I think some of that remained, but I think a lot of it was conformed to the teachings of Jesus. And part of the reason they were able to be together is because they were both looking to Jesus. And slowly their views began to conform to the views of Jesus. And over time, they found that their unity was not just this sort of artificial unity of belonging to the same group of people, but actually that they started agreeing with each other more and more. Now, the church is not a place where we just agree to disagree and see every view as acceptable. That's not true. We can't say, everybody's welcome here, and you're welcome to be as you are, to hold, on, to hold any view you want, believe whatever you want, do whatever you want, and we will just be at peace with each other. We will just not bring it up. We will agree to disagree. That's not what happens in a healthy church. No, some views are sinful. Some views are clearly contrary to Scripture. Some are matters of conscience. Some are personal preferences. Some are just something I believe today. It just came into my mind, and I feel particularly connected to that position. And when you walk with Jesus, and when, when we do that together, we discern what is what. We're actually able to discern, now this is really important. I better talk to my brother about this. I better have coffee with my sister and tell her murder is wrong. You know, that's not something we're going to agree to disagree on. But here's a personal preference. Oh, I'm okay with that. Here's a matter of conscience. Would let me accommodate my brother because of his conscience so I would not harm his conscience, that I would not wound his heart. Now, how do you discern that? You discern that by walking with Jesus together because Jesus is teaching us. And so there are certain things that change, absolutely. And anybody who comes to Jesus, your politics are going to change. Your sports allegiances may not, but your politics are going to change. Yeah. Your economics are going to change. All that is going to change. But there are certain things you're still going to disagree with other believers on, and that's okay. In the realm of personal preferences, in the realm of conscience, that's okay. And we love Jesus enough that we can be with other people that we disagree with. So the question for us is, as your faith is, is tested in, in the community of the church, does Jesus trump your background? Does Jesus trump your ethnicity? Does Jesus trump your politics? Because if you're a believer and you've been gathered into this church, into God's family, that's how it works. The disciples of Jesus have been called, gathered, and finally, and briefly, they've been sent. As disciples of Jesus, we have been sent. Look at verses 14 and 15. And he appointed 12, whom he also called apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now, apostle, the word apostle means messenger or representative or someone that is, who is sent on a mission. And while there is specific apostolic mission and office in the church, every disciple of Jesus has been sent. 
That's part of what it means to be a disciple. Now, what are we sent to do? Well, to preach the gospel. Or as, as Josh mentioned when you prayed from Peter, Peter put it in, in, in the language of proclaiming the excellencies of God. Proclaiming the beauty of God. Proclaiming the perfections of God. It's saying, look what God has done. We are to do that. We are to live in that awe of God's beauty. We are to live in the wonder of God has done for us. And then we share it with others. We are to preach the gospel. Now, to be sure, most Christians are not preachers per se. And some who preach shouldn't. But all Christians are, are called to speak the gospel, to share the gospel. It, it is the most wonderful message. The news that God came in Jesus to rescue us, that He is welcoming us into His family, that His kingdom is at hand, that our sins can be forgiven. That's our reality. If you believe in the gospel, it shapes everything you do. It shapes how you see everything. It shapes your lives. It shapes your relationships. It shapes how we work and how we raise children, how we cut grass, how we vote, how we worship, how we love others. Just as we have been changed by this gospel of grace in Christ, we too want to share it with others. 1 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8 is a great passage to see how Ordinary believers, just normal disciples, not apostles, normal disciples of Jesus, how they live out this mandate to share the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8, Paul commends the believers in Thessalonica, and he says, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. When the apostles are silent, we have done our job. When Paul says, you don't even need missionaries in your area. You guys have been so good at spreading the gospel. By the way, that doesn't mean everybody's a Christian in those areas. It just means everybody knows the gospel. The gospel has been present and Paul says, we don't need to send anybody. The apostles don't need to go there. The missionaries don't need to go there. We don't need to do anything because you guys have done it. Everybody knows the gospel because you've been so vocal about it. I don't think the same can be said of St. Louis. Even though the gospel has been here for a long time, and there are so many churches here, I think there are many people in our community who have not heard the gospel. We should take it seriously. That's on us. Because as disciples of Christ, we have been sent to share that gospel with others. And as we share the gospel, remember that we have been given authority to do so. It's not a hobby. We've been given authority from Christ himself to do that, especially in the face of the opposition. The apostles were sent to cast out demons by the authority of Jesus. Yes, they were, they were sent out to preach. And another parallel place tells us they were sent out to, to heal the sick. But they're also sent out to cast out demons. 
we too are called to bring light to those who are in the dark. There's opposition. It's naive to think that if we are just nice neighbors, and if we can share the gospel in a winsome way, if we're polite and kind and considerate, that people would just believe it. It is naive to put everything on the Christian and how we share the gospel. There's real opposition. We're proclaiming Christ's rule in the realm of Satan. And we can only be successful if and when God's power is at work, when His authority is at work. Conversions are spiritual transformations, and only the Spirit of God can do that. When I lived and served in Chicago, we had lots of church planners coming into town and trying to start new churches, usually in a you know, hip new neighborhood. Not many went into some of the harder places in the city. But they would come, and, and there was this great excitement. You know, they would bring a team with them, and there was money, and they would rent a place. And almost all of them inevitably would start by saying, we're going to get involved in a local school. We're going to change the reputation of Christians. We're going to have real church. All the, the names of churches were always like, real church. You know, like, you guys have done it so bad. We have to redeem the church here. And, and thank God we're here because now we're going to do it in a real way. And so they would come in. And, and, and I think good intentions, many of them called by God to do that. But I noticed that you needed about, you know, a year and a half, two years to realize that it's not enough just to be nice. It's not enough just to serve lunches in school. It's not enough just to do, you know, do a blood drive. I mean, it, that wasn't enough. There was spiritual opposition. There were demons in play. And so you had to come with the authority of Jesus. And that's the only way you were going to see conversions. If, if Jesus was going to change people, if the Holy Spirit was going to break stuff down and take down barriers and call people to himself. And that's how churches happened. Because Jesus has to call people, Jesus has to gather people and change them supernaturally. We just had a, another, stor another storm yes, last, Friday night, overnight. And some of you, does everybody have power back? And some, I think my neighbor still doesn't have power back. And let me tell you, nothing brings a neighborhood together like a good storm, right? Everybody's out. Men with their chainsaws. I mean, it's a glorious sight after, after the storm. <laughs> after the storm, everybody, everybody's friendly, right? I learned my neighbor's son is a bull rider. Who knew? If it wasn't for the storm, I would never know that. All of a sudden, there's a new unity. There's new relationships. There's, there's new passion. Let's get this done. Let's, let's just clear up some of these limbs. And, and the reason that happens is because we realize the opposition. And we see that something bad has happened. Something scary is happening. And we unite against it. Now, the churches who are really united, in spite of our differences, right? Matthews and Simons together and Peter and all that stuff. The churches who are really united are often united because they know that the opposition is fierce. And we have to hold on to each other. And we have to work together. It's not really a choice. If we're going to be successful, we all together go under the authority of Jesus and we do our jobs together knowing what's at stake. And that's how churches stay united. 
Well, I've talked long enough. I'm going to finish with this great passage that most of you know, and if you don't know it, you're welcome. It's a great passage. You need to know it. It's a central passage for our church, our vision of who we are. I'll end with Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and then we will come to the Lord's table. This is Jesus speaking, Matthew 28. This is his commission. This is him speaking to the apostles and through the apostles to us. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age.